Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening for a very special program of Social Flight Live, the show that is dedicated to supporting general aviation. We have a great program tonight with a focus on the SR-71 Blackbird. It's going to be really, really exciting, so I really appreciate you joining us for this show. I'd like to start very briefly with a quick uh, recap on our program of takeoffs for takeout. It's so important that all of us get together to support general aviation and to help all of the FBOs and restaurants and other businesses that are so affected during this crisis. And so we're certainly encouraging people who have the ability to fly safely with safe social distancing to uh, restaurants and other businesses that uh, support safe social distancing practices to help support those businesses during these times. And we have a great uh, one sent us right here by Chad Haas, EAA Chapter 1551 in Apocpa, Florida, if I pronounced that correctly, with his, uh, going to the Piper Cub at Williston Municipal X60. And uh, just some great pictures here uh, showing um, uh, that visit that, uh, that he did. So uh, thank you so much to Chad. Really appreciate that. And I encourage everyone to, to do that. All you need to do is go to socialflight.com or download the free Social Flight mobile app. There are tens of thousands of aviation events and destinations and great ways that you can help contribute to general aviation uh, in doing similar things. And send us an email at info at socialflight.com with your requests having to do with show, et cetera, and tell us your stories about how you are able to help general aviation keep going during this crisis. Now, um, I would like to start with the, tonight's presentation with a quick little uh, video. Uh, for some of you, you'll be able to hear the audio on this, uh, but if not, it's just a couple minutes, and I think you'll enjoy this. So let's, uh, let's get started.
All right. Uh, such an exciting aircraft. I mean, uh, it, it's a mixture between an airplane, obviously, and a spaceship and, and everything you can imagine in between. And so I'd like to start by introducing uh, tonight's uh, guests here on the program. We are joined by Ed Yielding, retired Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, Ed started with an electrical engineering uh, degree, was a co-op student at Auburn University and commissioned through the Air Force ROTC. In 1983, he was selected for the SR-71 program at Beale Air Force Base in California. Now, Ed flew 93 SR-71 overseas reconnaissance missions and became an SR-71 instructor pilot and also developmental test pilot. Um, when the SR-71 fleet was retired in 1990 and the Smithsonian Institution requested one for display, Ed departed California on March 6, 1990 in SR-71 tail number 972 with reconnaissance systems officer J.T. Vita and set speed records to call the public's attention to the retirement of this amazing aircraft. Uh, he wanted to honor all of the highly dedicated Americans who designed, maintained, supported, and flew the SR-71 during its 25 years of vital Cold War service, and those records still stand. Now, Ed is joined by retired Lieutenant Colonel Phil Soucy with us, and he is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base with a background in mechanical engineering and a master's in systems management. As a rated navigator, he has over 2,000 hours of flight experience in over 30 different aircraft, ranging from the F-4 Phantom Fighter to the world's fastest aircraft that we're here to talk about tonight, the Mach 3 Plus SR-71. Phil is also the co-founder and chairman of the aerospace engineering services company, Modern Technology Solutions, and he serves on the boards of the Air Force Museum Foundation and the National Pilot Test School. He's also a docent at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. He's an instrument rated pilot, like many of us out there, with commercial, single, and multi-engine ratings, and currently flies a Piper M600 and volunteers for patient airlift services, providing military veterans and families in need with free flights to medical facilities. Phil and Ed, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. It's a real honor. Well, it is an honor uh, to have you here and so many people here that uh, are sending uh, questions in, et cetera. We're going to do our best to get some of those questions to you along the way in the presentation. But I'd like to start with just a, a basic overview. Um, now, uh, some people are really familiar with the SR-71, others maybe not so much. And so, um, Phil, if you could start by giving us just some, some of the basics of this amazing aircraft. Sure. It really is an amazing airplane. In fact, when you, you look at it, whether it be uh, in a museum or a picture there, it really looks like uh, it's, it looks like a futuristic airplane, right? When you look at it, the shape, it's really unique. And what's really remarkable is when you think about it, it first flew over 50 years ago, right? First flight was in December of 1966, and there was actually a, a couple of predecessors that came uh, a couple of years before that. But uh, remarkable, over 50 years ago, and it's still the world's fastest airplane. And you can see some of the numbers there on the chart. 85,000 feet, Mach 3.3. And those aren't just numbers that, you know, where they uh, stripped the airplane uh, down, got the lightest weight airplane, got the skinniest crew members, and uh, went out and set some records. I mean, th this airplane essentially did this on every single mission, flew to those kind of altitudes and essentially those kind of speeds on nearly every single mission that it flew. 
and it was designed it was a point design airplane and it did those conditions very very well uh, considered first generation of stealth uh, technology also they worked uh, very hard and uh, to reduce the radar cross section while the airplane flies high and is fast it needed to have a smaller radar cross section and also needed to have some electronic warfare system as well uh, the radar cross section it's about the size of a a military training airplane, you know, like a T-38, about a one square meter cross-section target, and uh, kind of an interesting history of, of the work that they did to sort of set the set the stage for what now becomes a modern stealth technology that we see in a lot of uh, military aircraft. Uh, and what it had over some of the predecessors, or, or the predecessor that came a little bit ahead of it that was operated by the CIA, the A-12, this was a multi-end airplane. It had cameras, had radar for uh, collecting intelligence information, and also had recording devices for recording enemy uh, uh, radar emissions. Right, because basically that that was its primary mission, right? I mean, this is a spy craft, basically. Right. This is an intelligence. No, doesn't carry any bombs or any missiles or anything like that. But it's a uh, uh, intelligence aircraft for either flying, overflying uh, countries that uh, have um, capable air defense systems, or flying right along the. Uh, outside of the border and from high altitudes looking in quite a, quite a great distance. Right. Now, Ed, um, your resume in particular has an awful lot of speed records in it. <laughs> so can you talk to me a little bit about this? And, and as I understand it, that's, that's you right there in that picture, right? That's right. I'm about uh, 30 years younger there. <laughs> uh, it was a huge honor to fly the airplane. I flew it for six years. We loved flying the airplane. It was exciting to fly. And best of all, we felt like we were doing something really useful and important for our country and for the cause of freedom. When Congress voted to retire the airplane in late 1989 because of improvements in spy satellites and unmanned uh, reconnaissance aircraft, they decided to retire the airplane. The Smithsonian Institution wanted one for display. And they wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Air Force, uh, Donald Rice. I have a copy of that letter requesting that we set a, an official coast-to-coast -coast speed record to call the public's attention to what a great airplane it had been for our country for 25 years. J.T. Vita and I were just in the right place at the right time to fly that record flight. I want to tell you just a little bit about J.T. Uh, he was just an outstanding RSO he got cancer and passed away two and a half years after our record flight in 1990. He passed away in September of 92. Just a really an outstanding individual. He had more time in the Blackbird than any other crew member in history. <clears throat> he had uh, he had 1,392.7 total hours in the Blackbird, more than anyone else, pilot or navigator, or RSO. I ended up with 785 hours. Um, to the left side of the screen there, you see Ben Rich. This picture was taken at the end of our uh, speed record flight in Washington there. Uh, ben Rich took over the skunk works of Lockheed after Kelly Johnson retired. So Ben Rich, in charge of skunk works, was there to greet us when we arrived in Washington. <clears throat> so it was just a huge honor to get to fly that flight. Um, any of the crew members, had the experience and skill to fly that flight, just JT and I were in the right place at the right time. So we both always considered those records as Blackbird records. We were just lucky to be the crew that day. Wow. <laughs> I'll tell you, we, we took off from Palmdale. Um, 
who took, took off from Palmdale March the 6th of 1990. We flew 200 miles out over the Pacific in air refueled since they, they wanted a coast-to-coast speed record, so you actually have to cross both coastlines. So we refueled over the Pacific, uh, lit the afterburners, and got a 200-mile running start. <clears throat> and we crossed the West Coast as planned, accelerating through Mach 2.5. We would like to have been able to fly top speed from coast to coast, but fuel was really tight to cross the East Coast and turn around and land at Dulles. So we had to plan to cross the West Coast at accelerating through Mach 2.5 and then reach our cruise speed of uh, Mach 3.3 about eight minutes later. Well, I'll never forget what a beautiful sight it was crossing the West Coast. We were already above 60,000 feet, and the sun was still below the horizon, below the eastern horizon, but it was just enough twilight that I could see the white ocean breakers all along the coastlines in both directions. <clears throat> just a beautiful sight. Off to my left, I could see the lights of San Francisco 300, 300 miles away. They wanted us to fly almost directly over Los Angeles because they also wanted a Los Angeles to D.C. record. So I could see the millions of lights down below of Los Angeles. And off to my right, I could see all the lights of San Diego and then the darkness of uh, Mexico beyond that. Wow. So we're flying three times, approaching three times the speed of sound toward the sun. So the sun's coming up really rapidly, and pretty soon the sun is up. We're at a cruise speed of Mach 3.3. I could see Palmdale down below that we had just taken off from earlier. And then a few minutes later, I could see all of uh, Las Vegas, all of Lake Mead. We passed by the uh, Grand Canyon off to my left. You could see the majestic mountains of southwest Colorado. And just off to the north, uh, a few minutes later, we could see uh, Pikes Peak, where Catherine Bates from the top of Pikes Peak was inspired to write that wonderful song, America the Beautiful, one of my favorite songs. Since this was a special flight, I was having some special thoughts, and I thought of her song, and I thought, what a great country we have, and just a few minutes later, we're flying right over that fruited plain that she sang about in her song, hundreds of miles of prime American farmland. You think about those uh, pioneers just 150 years earlier taking taking months to cross uh, miles that JT and I were crossing in just a matter of minutes. Thought about what a great country we have, made great by the hard work and the sacrifices, uh, courage, and, and prayers of our forefathers. And then a few minutes later, we're over the eastern part of the country. It's undercast. I didn't see many features, but JP and I just made sure we were enjoying our last few minutes of flying this marvelous, marvelous airplane. And how fortunate we were to serve alongside hundreds of other uh, highly dedicated men and women who designed and maintained, supported, and flew the airplane during its 25 years. One last view of God's earth from, 20, from 80,000 feet. And uh, then as we approached the East Coast, uh, we were at 83,000 feet because we were doing a cruise climb the whole time. The airplane typically would cruise with a cruise climb because we're more efficient being a little higher as we got lighter. So we're at 83,000 feet when it's time to terminate the afterburner. And we crossed the East Coast in a descending left-hand turn because fuel's tight. 
headed back to Dulles. We had we planned it so that we could land at Dulles with just the bare minimum required uh, uh, minimum fuel, but they wanted us to make a few passes for the crowd there, so they had a tanker meet us once we got to 25,000 feet. We took on just a, a little bit more fuel so we could make a couple of passes for the crowd. We made our first pass at 800 feet. They wanted one more pass. Made that pass uh, at 200 feet, lit the afterburners to beam the tower in the crowd. And uh, that picture wound up on the front page of the Washington Post the next morning the after, with the uh, Blackbird and the afterburners uh, cooking. We pulled up, rocked our wings in a good vice gesture because that would be the last time that airplane would ever fly. Touched down to deploy that big orange drag chute one last time. <clears throat> Taxied in, and we had a a little ceremony passing the airplane over to the uh, Smithsonian. So it was just a real special day. Uh, there were a number of key Lockheed people there. One of them was Bob Gilliland, the very first test pilot to fly the, the Blackbird. They, by the way, he became one of my best friends, and they have written a biography on Bob Gilliland. He'll, that should be published early next year. And then uh, Lou Shock was the first uh, pilot to fly the A-12 that uh, Phil talked about earlier. He was there also to meet us and a number of uh, former commanders and all. It was just a really special day, and CT and I felt so honored to, to fly that uh, special record flight. That's that's got to be amazing. I mean, and the fact for for you know that 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 was the last flight that you have that that last opportunity, and and it must be interesting for both of you. I mean, Phil, you said for example that uh, you spend a lot of time, obviously, or you you serve over at the uh, museum that's got it. it. It what's it like to stand next to an aircraft that's now in the Smithsonian? that used to be your daily ride or used to be something that you look at and say, I know exactly how to climb into it and buckle in and get set up. <laughs> yeah. Now I think, you know, the one thing when you see something used to fly that's in a museum though, you realize you've gotten old, right? <laughs> so, uh, old, but you know, know what? I, let's uh, just say older famous. We'll leave yeah. it one of those two. <laughs> no, uh, I, that's the airplane, uh, 972 that, uh, Ed flew on that record breaking flight was our flight test airplane at Palmdale. So I've got, many sorties in that airplane, uh, flying that airplane. Uh, my name used to be on the airplane, so it kind of has a special uh, uh, place in my heart, that airplane. So it's a real pleasure to volunteer there as a docent, a tour guide at the Air and Space Museum. Uh, people love hearing about the airplane. Uh, I enjoy talking about it, uh, get a lot of very interesting questions. Uh, uh, most of them I can answer. There's always some I can't answer, though. People come up with some very good questions. So. Uh, it's it's a remarkable airplane. It has a, if you haven't been to Udmurhazi, uh, for any of the folks that are listening in here, I highly recommend it. Once it gets opened back up uh, in the SR-71, uh, this airplane here, 972, uh, has a very prominent uh, place. You can't miss it when you come in. Absolutely. So let's talk about the airplane for a minute. Obviously, there were a lot of uh, challenges uh, uh, in terms of what it, what the aircraft was designed for. Can you talk about some of that? Yeah, so when you think about it, I said over 50 years ago, right, something like this had never been designed, never been built, right? So high operating temperatures, right? You know, Ed talked about flying along there at uh, Mach 3.2, Mach 3.3. Uh, 3. You know, that's 21, almost 2,200 miles an hour, and the airplane heats up. Uh, it's, you know, it's um, so the high operating temperatures, uh, it's minus 60 degrees about centigrade uh, outside, minus 75 degrees Fahrenheit. 
but this airplane is going so fast, you know, 30 miles a minute, uh, a mile every two seconds, so you get this aerodynamic heating on the airplane. So it posed an awful lot of challenges to it. Uh, the airplane is built, over 90% of the airplane is titanium, you know, using uh, uh, traditional uh, materials that are used in aircraft design, like a lot of aluminum, wouldn't be able to handle those kind of temperatures. Steel in some areas wouldn't be able to handle that kind of temperatures. So uh, magnesium, kind of an interesting, uh, magnesium, titanium, a lot of the, uh, and an interesting story with the titanium, uh, you know, so this is an intelligence uh, gathering airplane or connaissance airplane. The source for the titanium, the uh, biggest source of world of titanium, in the world of titanium is the Soviet Union, then the Soviet Union, today Russia. And the titanium that went into building this airplane was procured by the Central Intelligence Agency using front companies procuring this titanium from the Soviet Union that went into this. So, uh, and not just with the materials on the airplane as far as the temperature goes, but it required a special fuel to be developed for this airplane that could handle these high temperatures a special ignition system that could ignite this fuel that uh, is very stable at the high temperatures, special hydraulic fuel of uh, fluids. Uh, tires had to have uh, aluminum impregnated in them to help uh, reflect the heat, just a whole, uh, whole range of things. Uh, aerodynamics, it goes without saying, right? Uh, if you're gonna fly at those kind of speeds, and, you know, it's one thing to have a, a rocket, let's say, that can fly at these high speeds, but this airplane also has to fly at subsonic speeds, right? It has to fly at transonic speeds, has to fly at low Mach numbers, it has to fly and cruise at, uh, you know, Mach 3 plus. So you have to have aerodynamics that can handle that whole flight regime. And then wow. the real, in my mind, the real amazing thing about the airplane is the propulsion system, right? And it's not just the engine. We might get a chance to talk about that a little bit later, but it's a uh, the inlets, the engine, and the uh, and the nozzle of the diffuser on the back end of right. the airplane that, that make the whole propulsion system. Of course, you're flying at uh, 80,000 feet. You're not in outer space or anything like that, but uh, you know you're up high enough. You're you're above a large percentage of the Earth's atmosphere. You know, not enough uh, uh, air pressure, not enough oxygen to be able to survive there. So you need a pressure pressure suit. The uh, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later if we have time. The cockpit's pressurized. Uh, to 25,000 feet, but if you were to lose pressurization, you need the uh, pressure suit to survive, or if you had to eject as well. So right. in the navigation system, uh, you know, if you're going out and you're taking pictures with a camera, uh, and this is all done automated through the uh, flight planning system and the uh, mission computer, uh, you have to be flying exactly where you think you are, because if a camera's coming on at a certain point, looking at a certain distance and a certain angle, or the radar is scanning a particular spot on the ground, you're not exactly where you think you are, you're not going to get the intelligence information you expect. This right. is all before GPS, right? So you have to have yes. some way to navigate. We may talk about that a little bit later, plus all the sensors that go with it. So they really had their hands full when they uh, put this uh, airplane together, and it was done by Lockheed Skunk Works. Uh, uh, Kelly Johnson was the uh, the mastermind behind this whole design. Yeah, it, it really is amazing. Now, we, we have got a slide here on those temperatures just to kind of show people what the temperatures were. I mean. Up to, uh, uh, up to 622 degrees in the front, average surface temperature of 600 degrees. I mean, massive differences. Um, I mean, and in the cockpit, what, what do you feel in the cockpit uh, uh, when it comes to temperature during this? What's the environmental systems like? The uh, air conditioner worked pretty well in the cockpit. We also had air circulating through our pressure suit and we had adjustments for the temperature and airflow. So it was really pretty comfortable. But even with our thick uh, pressure suit gloves, we could reach up and, and touch the window. And you, it was like touching an oven window 
<laughs> even hotter than an oven window. So you could tell it was really hot on the outside, but fortunately the air conditioning was working uh, really well. Wow, that's, uh, that, that's pretty impressive. Now, when you talk about propulsion, um, we have a few images here uh, of, of that and a couple, a couple uh, uh, slides to talk about having to do with it. I think one of the most iconic things about the, um, uh, about the, the aircraft, obviously, is the way those engines look between that and then the air inlet system. Um, Phil, can you lead us through a few of these slides about the engines and the air system? Yeah, a, a little, just briefly here, you know, it's like I said, the propulsion system is not just the engine, right? It's the air inlet system and the, and the diffuser on the back, but that air inlet system, uh, you see this spike on the front. You know, the engine is behind that, uh, probably some, I don't know, I never really measured it, uh, probably 12 feet back there. So there's this whole inlet section in front of the engine. And a jet engine can't take supersonic air. You have to get that air slowed down, right, to subsonic, right? So you're, you're talking about needing a, a mechanical system that's going to take the air that's going 2,100 miles an hour out in front of the uh, inlet there and then slowing it down to maybe 350 miles an hour, right? So you got to slow it down in that amount of time. And you do that with this, by setting up a series of shock waves. And in the process of doing that, you actually compress the air. So you're taking this air that it's uh, at a low um, pressure. You're at high altitude, low pressure uh, out there. Uh, and you compress this air such that the air that's getting to the front of the engine after it goes through this inlet that I'll describe just briefly is, uh, is compressed so, and slowed down so that the air pressure is pretty much like it is at sea level. So the engine thinks it's on the ground. It's getting this wow. air at the proper pressure. And that spike in the front moves back 26 inches. And so it's controlled initially was by an analog computer. And then as the, um, as the airplane was in service for a while and digital computers came along, it was replaced with a uh, system called DAFX, but it was a digital computer that controlled those inlets. And those inlets move back uh, 26 inches as a function of Mach number. So starting at Mach 1.6, they start moving back. And you can picture, if you're looking at it here, as that thing moves back, it's going to open up the capture area in the front, right? See, You see a small annular ring where the air would come in. If you move that spike back, that area is going to get bigger. And then it's going to neck down the throat further in there to set up these series of shock waves and does this job of compressing the air. So it's really remarkable. The, uh, it was all done automatically. Now, the pilot had control over that. If the, uh, if the computer system wasn't working properly, if there was a problem, there was a phenomenon called unstarts, Ed might be able to want to, might want to talk about that. But when the, uh, when the inlet wasn't working properly and you landed up with an unstart, the pilot could take control of it and, uh, and get the uh, inlet operating properly, along with a series of doors that control these pressures. It was really remarkable, especially when you think about 50 years ago, over 50 years yeah. ago. I mean, you weren't exactly doing this uh, on a lot of, uh, uh, there was an awful lot of slide rules 50 yes. years ago, still on engineering desks. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think when you talk about starts, let's, let's talk about the engine, and then we actually have some stuff to talk about on, on starts, and I'm curious about that from both perspectives. Um, this is the engine, the, the, uh, the, the J58, right? Correct. Um, so one of the things that's, uh, you know, it's a, Turbojet engine, in many ways, it's uh, similar to a lot of turbojet engines with one exception, with one big exception. It can handle all these high operating temperatures. In fact, one of the main uh, limitations on how fast the airplane could go was the compressor inlet temperature. Uh, there was a limit on that. I think it was 427, Ed may remember, it was some number like that, 427 degrees Celsius. 
uh, on the front exactly. of the engine. But if you look at the picture of the engine there, you see those tubes kind of in the middle um, that run by, uh, run from the front to the back. So the front of the engine being on the on the right side of the slide, uh, the back end being on the left side. But you see those tubes. You can see a couple tubes there. That takes bypass air off the fourth stage of the compressor, routes it around the burner, around the um, the um, the um, the section where <laughs> lost my turn. Yeah, around the uh, compre the. Uh, you mean like the hot section? The hot section. That's the word I was looking for. Sorry about that. Uh, routes it around the hot section, puts it to the afterburner. So now you've got extra air back there, and you can add extra fuel, and you can uh, uh, get additional thrusts out of the afterburner. So you've got this compressed bypass here that's coming off the compressor, going around the hot section, and then put back in the uh, back end of the engine. Uh, now, Ed, really Ed, a unique design. Ed, what was uh, engine management like uh, when flying this aircraft? I mean, today, I mean, you look at things like uh, pro probably the FedEx system that, uh, Phil, you fly behind on the M600. Like, it's all computer-controlled, a lot's done for you. What was it like managing those engines in both normal and then also, you know, exceptional or emergency situations? Yep, the, uh, yeah, the engine was really, really remarkable. He, he mentioned the air being around, routed around the burner cans of the hot section. So that gave the engine uh, a, a ramjet effect. <clears throat> so it has some ramjet qualities. Now, interestingly, the fuel that we burned was a special fuel. It was had, to, had a real high flash point so that it would not start burning in the fuel tanks because of the heat on the airplane. So it was a special fuel. It was hard to get it ignited. You couldn't. You could hold a match to it, and it would not light the fuel. So to light the fuel, we carried a chemical called TEB, triethylborane. So when we initially started the engine, as we advanced the throttle forward, there would be a squirt of TEB, and that TEB would start burning uh, as soon as it came in contact with air, and it would burn hot enough to light the fuel. That's a good shot of the, the TEB uh, burning there. So you'd see that flash, and then that would light the fuel, and, and the engine would be running. Then throughout the flight, every time every time we lit the afterburner, there would be a shot of TEB, and we carried about 16 total shots of TEB for each engine. Uh, let's see. So does that so mean the engine had a sea level thrust of about 34,000 pounds uh, of thrust? Uh, the initial takeoff, when you when we lit the afterburner for takeoff, it'd be a real kick in the pants, <laughs> accelerating rapidly down the runway. Uh, two minutes later, we'd be at 25,000 feet, where we, typically we would level off at 25,000 feet and air refuel, get a full load of fuel. The reason we did that was because it was safer to take off with half a load of fuel than it was a full load. It fully loaded, fully loaded. If we lifted off and and had an engine failure at slow speed and low altitude, might not be able to control the airplane. So for safety, we took off half loaded of fuel. 25,000 feet air refueled, and then if we lost an engine, we were going fast enough that we could bring it back and land with no problem. Wow. Uh, it took about 20 minutes uh, to, to fly from 25,000 feet up to our initial cruise altitude of about 72,000 uh, feet typically, and we would do a cruise climb through the, through the flight. Usually we cruised at Mach 3. Not faster than 3.2 unless we had special permission. And I had special permission on that record flight to, 
<clears throat> go to the flight manual limit of 3.3. We always had enough power to go faster than 3.2, typically uh, cruising along with mid afterburner. And the airplane actually did cruise an afterburner. And it's surprising that the airplane got its best fuel economy, best miles per gallon, near 80,000 feet with the afterburner going. Wow. <laughs> um, that was the best best economy uh, regime for the for the airplane. Uh, let's see. So, so those uh, shots, those Teb shots, basically, you use those to light the afterburner, but they were also what was your 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 safety net for a flame out or something like that as well. Uh, yes, if we had an engine failure and, and needed to bring it down to a lower altitude and attempt to restart, I never I never experienced an engine failure. Uh, Several of my buddies did, and we would practice it in the simulator a lot. We'd practice single-engine procedures frequently in the simulator. But So we'd bring it down to a lower altitude, and then we had enough TEB to, to attempt engine starts at, at, uh, at lower altitude. What was the um, simulator like for an SR-71? So this was an early 60s uh, technology simulator. It had um, limited, very limited motion. You didn't really need a lot of uh, high bank uh, uh, experience in the SR-71. As a matter of fact, our bank limit, bank angle limit at supersonic was uh, 45 degrees. And, and the G limit was uh, 1.5 Gs supersonic. Lighter weights down low, we could pull up the two and a half G's in the, in the pattern. Um, <clears throat> the simulator was really an excellent training tool. The instructor, the pilot instructor sat right behind the student pilot and he could input, uh, he could input in various different emergencies. And the simulator was really worth its weight in gold, I, I felt. We developed so much confidence after all those hours in the simulator that we could handle anything that could possibly go wrong. Um, so we developed a really high confidence level. And so that, that made the airplane really a lot of fun to fly because we, we knew we could handle anything that could go wrong. Wow. Now the RSO, he was sitting nearby in a separate uh, simulator box with his uh, instructor sitting behind him. And he also could input the, uh, malfunctions to the uh, uh, student RSO. And, and when I say student, after, after our initial training, we still regularly had practice simulators. So, so we, we, we would be sitting in the student position, even though we had a lot of, a lot of experience in the, in the airplane. That makes sense. Now, speaking of the RSO side, so, so Phil, that's that's navigation and uh, and also all of the uh, observation stuff that happened. Right. Yeah. One thing before I mention that, I just add on to something Ed said when we were talking about the fuel. People might find interesting. At least I always found it interesting. I mean, this is a sixty thousand pound empty weight airplane carrying eighty thousand pounds of fuel. So when you see the pictures or you stand beside the airplane, it's mostly fuel. You know, from after the cockpits, uh, maybe two or three feet, three or four feet after the aft cockpit, 
all the way back in the fuselage and in the wings inside of the uh, engines, that's all fuel. So think wow. about your own airplane you may fly and think about how much fuel that would mean for you if you're, you know, flying a two or 3,000 pound airplane and uh, how much fuel you'd, you'd be carrying to have that same uh, ratio. Wow. From the, uh, the duties of the RSO in the back, uh, reconnaissance systems officer, uh, you know, they came from different uh, backgrounds. Most of them came from a fighter background, uh, a weapon systems officer, a, a backseat in a fighter aircraft like the F-4 Phantom, maybe the F-111, the FB-111. There were some uh, navigators that came from uh, tankers or B-52s, let's say. So it was a varied background, the folks that came to the, uh, to the airplane. And the backseat duties were to, in many ways, uh, there's no flight controls back there. Right? Other flight or airplanes that I had the, was fortunate to fly in the backseat had flight control, uh, uh, flight controls back there, but the SR-71 had none. It, it, it truly was uh, a systems operator's position back there. And so uh, duties in the back are serve as a co-pilot, even though you have no flight controls, but uh, backing up on checklists, emergency procedures, and of course, all the mission equipment, right? Uh, and the main heart of the uh, mission equipment is this, uh, what we're referring to here, the Astro, the uh, ANS system, the Astro Navigation System. And so, you know, many airplanes of this time, so this is all before GPS, so airplanes of this time would have something called an INS, an inertial navigation system. So, I mean, I describe that as a box. It's got uh, uh, some spinning wheels in it, one on each axis that uh, spinning very fast. That allows the, uh, the box to be stabilized, right? So that if the airplane banks, the inside of the box knows what's up, down, left or right or whatever. And there's uh, sensors on those, accelerometers. And so it senses how you move. Uh, it knows where you started. It senses how you move. And uh, so it knows where you're at, right? So you don't need to rely on any ground-based signals or anything like that, right? When you're flying someplace where they don't exist or they might be jammed. The problem with an INS is they drift with time. Uh, meaning that, you know, like uh, the F-4 Phantom INS, uh, three miles in an hour. It'd be off by three miles for every hour you flew, right? So if you're flying a mission with some air refueling and maybe you're up for six or seven hours, five or six hours, let's say, you're off by that many hours times three, right? Which wasn't gonna be nearly enough to fly that very precise ground track, you're gonna to need to fly to have these sensors turn on at the right place, turn off at the right place, take the pictures to the right spot, et cetera. So they came up with this uh, astro navigation system. So what it is is, uh, if you look at the where the red circle is there on the top of the airplane, to get yourself oriented the uh, to the top of that picture is the nose of the airplane, and you come back over the top of the airplane, there's a small glass window. And underneath that glass window where it's circled uh, there is a, uh, is a telescope. And what that telescope does, it's going to track the stars. And uh, much like a mariner would do with a sextant, you know, out at sea where you get a line of position off a star, another line of position off a star, and then a third one. And where they all cross is where you're at. This system is, uh, is doing that. Um, tracking those stars and bounding the errors on that inertial navigation system so that it doesn't drift off. Uh, and it provided extremely good uh, accuracy. Uh, the chart has some numbers there of 300 foot accuracy, but it did much better than that. And to give you a sense of how impressive this system was is, we're talking about tracking the stars in the daylight. Wow. Even on the ground, once you came out of the hangar. So, so you, really, didn't have to wait. you didn't have to wait till you get up to 80,000 feet or something where you're at the edge of space almost. You, you're, yeah. you're able to do it during the day. That's amazing. Yeah. As long as there's no cloud cover, it would track those stars. 
Uh, and if there were cloud cover, once you got above the clouds, it would pick up those stars, track them, bound those errors, and there never were any clouds at uh, 80,000 feet. So you didn't have to worry about it up there. But uh, and again, especially when you think about it, uh, going back some 50 years ago, in this uh, ANS is the heart of the system. All the uh, the mission plan was put in there. The ground tracker going to fly when the sensors are gonna come on and when the sensors are gonna come off, those are all put in there. And the, uh, and the RSO in the back is essentially monitoring that. He has a, uh, a flight plan all laid out. He's, uh, he's monitoring that and make sure that it's operating as it's supposed to. And there's all sorts of failure modes and backup modes and things like that you can do to take control to make sure the, the mission is salvaged as best it can. But the, the heart of the navigation system is ANS. And you can see it's, it's a pretty good sized system. Um, you know, it's a picture of me. At the, we have one at the, uh, the Aerospace National Mall building downtown. We have a, an ANS there on display, and you can see that it's, you know, it's a pretty good size uh, device there off to the right in the picture to the right. You know, nowadays we could probably uh, get an app for our phone that would do the same <laughs> thing, right? But uh, back then, this is pretty impressive. <laughs> It really is. It's it's unbelievable. And I'd like to also go back to something you said towards the beginning, and that is, you know, the, it, it seems like the aircraft had a, a closer uh, a bond of, of trust and roles and responsibilities between the pilot and the RSO than most any other aircraft, because like you said, the RSO does not have controls to fly the aircraft. That has to be completely tr entrusted to the pilot. And the pilot, I would assume, is busy flying the aircraft. Uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, Ed. And so where you are and everything else going on is trusted to the guy in the back about actually doing the mission. So it's got to be an interesting bond between the two of you and the roles and responsibilities and the fact that there isn't crossover uh, compared to a lot of aircraft that have both. Yeah, Ed could probably talk yeah. to it, but they, uh, they, crewed, they, they had paired crews for the operational missions. I flew out of Palmdale in the test organization, uh, but uh, up at Beale in the operational missions, they trained as a crew, and then they uh, continued on their operational assignment as a crew. Ed? Yeah, you'd be crewed together for two or three or more years. That's correct. And, and we developed a really good rapport uh, through the mission, the backseater, RSO, would typically read the checklist, the front seater would do and respond, and the back seater RSO also made all the radio calls until we got into the traffic pattern uh, on return. <clears throat> so it's a, a real good, really good team effort. Just wow. totally relied on the RSO in the back, for sure. So in this environment, you mentioned the suit a little bit before. In, th in this environment, uh, can, can you guys talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, it looks basically like you're wearing a space suit, and there are so many things that you've got to uh, look at in terms of how to handle emergencies, what happens in that. Um, tell me a little bit about the air, the air crew life support system. Okay. Yeah, I can talk to that I a little bit. Earlier, but... oh, go ahead, Ed. Okay. I mentioned earlier the pressure suit was pretty comfortable to wear with the with the air circulating inside the suit. The the cockpit was pressurized to an equivalent of about twenty five thousand feet. Um, if you were to lose cockpit pressure above sixty three thousand feet without a pressure suit, uh, your blood starts to boil because you don't have enough pressure on your body, and your blood will start to boil. And you know, that always ruins your whole day whenever your blood starts boiling. So the pressure suit is a safety backup to losing cockpit pressure. The, uh, the 
if she lost cockpit pressure, the suit would immediately inflate and uh, and uh, provide enough pressure on your on your body. The um, visor for your uh, helmet had little uh, heating filaments in the visor, so that your visor would not fog over. And you had an adjustment for the heat setting on that on that uh, visor faceplate that we call it. And then we had another visor, a sun shield that would slide in front of that. And then we had uh, also on the helmet we had a little valve at the at the bottom of the uh, near the bottom of the visor a faceplate, and we had uh, Gatorade. We carried Gatorade in our in a cockpit for long flights with a long tube, and we could stick that tube in that uh, valve and hold the Gatorade bottle up and keep ourselves hydrated during during the long long missions. How long is a long mission? Um, our longest, uh, longest routine missions were five and a half hours. Uh, we had some routine missions as short as two hours, so probably average four hours. But my longest uh, mission was eight and a half hours. That was an unusual mission. And then there were a handful of missions that were even 11-hour uh, missions. <clears throat> wow. Uh, and where do you have to come, I assume during that, how many times do you have to come down to an altitude to refuel? After we completed refueling, it would be, we, we would need to be uh, hooking up again in about an hour and a half later. Uh, wow. But you can go a long way in an hour and a half. Uh, at, 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 at Mach 3.2, yeah, you, you, yeah. I would imagine you can. But so you had to come right. down to what, what altitude to refuel? Uh, we always refuel at a right at 25,000 feet. So we would join up with the tanker. The tanker would be 315 knots indicated airspeed. We would join up with the tanker. And as we took on fuel and the tanker became lighter, he would gradually accelerate to 350 knots indicated. And as we filled up the aircraft, we were really behind the, air, behind the pressure, um, uh, power curve, behind the power curve, at that uh, high weight. So when the throttles were at the military, at the military power position up against the stops, we would light the left afterburner. And as soon as that left afterburner lit, we would pull back the right throttle, keep the left throttle in then afterburner and then modulate the right throttle to stay in position under the tanker as we completed our refueling. So that asymmetric thrust Found, cost us about 15 to 20 degrees of uh, left bank as we completed our refueling. We took a lot of pride in being able to get all our fuel without a pressure disconnect or, or without a uh, limit disconnect. If we, if we came to one of the limits of the boom, it would automatically disconnect and we'd have to hook back up and, and, and take fuel some more. So we took a lot of pride in, in not having uh, limit disconnects. And we felt like we were really earning our money if we were air refueling at night in turbulence in the weather. Wow. That's, that's got to be, maybe, I mean, 300 plus miles per hour right in that range has got to be slow for the SR-71. And you're using asymmetric thrust, asymmetric afterburner use just to stay connected to that boom during that. that, that that's got to be something. Right. <clears throat> um. Here, here's another uh, interesting thing about the flight characteristics. 
I probably should have mentioned it when I, when we were talking about high altitude, but even though we're going nearly 2,200 miles an hour, over 2,000 miles an hour, the airplane had good handling qualities because the knots equivalent airspeed was reasonably low. Our main indicator for flying in the front cockpit besides the ADI was a TDI, triple digit uh, indicator. And on that indicator, we had our Mach altitude and keys, knots equivalent airspeed. So when we got to near cruise altitude of 72,000 feet, our keys would typically be 450 knots. And then as we did our cruise climb, the keys would gradually decrease as we got higher down to about uh, 320 uh, knots keys. Um, and what that means is knots equivalent airspeed is means that the airplane, the, the air pressure on the flight controls would feel the same at, at uh, sea level. So if, if your keys were indicating 330 knots at 80,000 feet, the, the pressure, air pressure on the flight controls felt like you were going 330 knots at sea level. So you can see that even though our speed was over 2,000 miles an hour, it was not pitch sensitive like you might expect it to be. The, the, the uh, flight characteristics were, were pretty uh, normal. So and the airplane flew, flew really, really easily. So what did what did it feel like? What were stick forces like on the uh, on the plane? The the uh, airplane was pretty uh, heavy in pitch because they did not want us to accidentally over G the airplane. So it was the stick was heavy in pitch, but the airplane rolled really easy. It rolled easily like a like a fighter aircraft. Now normally on our missions we would connect the auto the autopilot. And the autopilot would keep our course aligned, and it would even automatically enter a turn to stay on course. Um, but sometimes that autopilot would fail, and we would just hand fly, hand fly the the course. We typically gave it to the autopilot in in the uh, reconnaissance areas because the autopilot could hold the airplane a little more still than we could, and, and so the pictures would be a, a little better if the uh, <clears throat> autopilot was holding the airplane steady. Wow, and what was visibility um, like? Visibility, you, uh, when you look at the airplane, you thought, boy, these guys could hardly see out at all, but the visibility was pretty good. We could see forward and, and out the side pretty well. Um, I could... I could look down to my left or right, and I could probably see uh, down to an angle of about uh, probably about 30 degrees from vertical. But then you, if you want to see below that, you could just roll the airplane over, roll it over a little bit and, and see down straight below. Uh, at that altitude, um, 80,000 feet, the horizon was about 400 miles away. So you could – you could see – uh, coastlines easily. You could not see individual buildings from that altitude, but you could see where cities were because the the city area just looked different from the surrounding countryside. You could see mountain ranges and rivers, and and then it was uh, a 
really beautiful from 80,000 feet. You can see a slight curvature on the Earth. Um, the uh, more noticeable than the curvature, though, was how dark it was overhead, almost uh, almost pitch black, not quite pitch black, because there was still about 3% of the atmosphere was above us. The atmosphere, we were above 97% of that atmosphere at 80,000 feet. And then a bright band of blue on the horizon. So you had the feeling that you're cruising at the edge of space, even though we're only 15 or 16 miles high, well below any kind of a orbit altitude. But you had the feeling of being at the edge of space. There was never any wind or very little wind, almost no wind at all. We were always above the jet stream. So it was always really smooth, no turbulence at our cruise altitudes. It was just a real smooth ride uh, at that altitude. Wow. And now that's an incredibly busy cockpit, obviously, up front there. Um, what, what, what kind of, a, what kind of learning curve was that? And then also, B, what's it like to operate all of that when you're wearing that, that suit and those big gloves? <clears throat> it, it, was, uh, it was pretty comfortable. The, all the switches were designed for use with uh, pressure suit gloves. So it was really not a problem uh, making the switch changes or knobs and all. Uh, there were quite a few things to watch carefully. Uh, for the engines, you had to keep a close watch on the exhaust gas temperature. We even had a control if the exhaust gas temperature started to exceed the limits. We even had a control for uh, downgrading the temperature. They would change the nozzle a little bit on the engine so that the temperature would be within limits. Uh, I ought to talk a little bit about unstarts. <clears throat> we had a phenomenon called called an unstart, where occasionally the normal shock wave, which is the last shock wave that the air goes through before it becomes uh, subsonic, every now and then that shock wave would get suddenly spit out the inlet. And when it happened, it was a sudden loss of thrust, and it even felt like a small explosion, even though it wasn't. Uh, it was not dangerous, but it sure it sure would startle you every time it happened. So you'd be flying along, and all of a sudden, boom, and you'd get a sudden yaw wow. on the airplane. Sometimes it was sometimes it was uh, sudden enough that it would bang your helmet on the cockpit. Usually not, but some sometimes it would. So to clear that unstart, the computer would send both spikes full, full forward and open the bypass doors. And then it would reset the spikes into the inlet and reset the uh, reset the bypass doors, and you'd be off and running again. Sometimes you have to relight the afterburner. Wow! If you didn't lose much didn't lose much speed during those fifteen seconds of re reset because the air was so thin. Then, if you had repeated unstarts, we had controls in the in the cockpit for manually setting the position of the the spike and the bypass doors, and we would practice that quite a bit in this in the simulator. We got wow. really good at it, and, and sometimes we would practice just flying. We called it a manual inlet. Inlet. We would take the inlet control from the computer and practice uh, scheduling the inlet uh, manually. Now uh, um, that's that's pretty impressive, Phil. Can you tell me a little bit about what what the what a mission typical mission was like from from your role as an RSO there? Were you were you how much of the intelligence were you privy to, and what was a mission like? 
Yeah, so my experience with the airplane was flying it in a test capacity down in Palmdale, California, where we did overhaul and we had a test aircraft. I didn't fly any operational uh, missions with the airplane. We were testing new systems and, uh, you know, ringing them out, getting them fielded, and then testing the airplanes so they came out, uh, out of overhaul. Right. I got trained up at Beale. I knew all the guys up there. I was generally familiar with the missions they flew, but I didn't fly any any particular operational missions, but uh, it was busy in the back as well, right? Uh, not as much, obviously, with the uh, operation of the airplane, but the operation of the sensors and making sure they were taking the information that they were supposed to be taking. We were right. doing flight tests at that time on the, uh, when I was at Palmdale on the ASARS radar system, which was an advanced synthetic aperture radar system, not a radar for finding airborne targets or for avoiding weather, but for doing imagery on the ground. There was a whole, range of different modes it had. It had resolutions that went down to one foot, uh, had greater swath angles it could take with less resolution. But we were testing that system and you would get some of that information, you would get like snapshots of that information into the cockpit to make sure it was working right, but you didn't have the full resolution in the cockpit, you didn't have the full details. And of course, any of the, the uh, photography that was taken, that was post-mission process, so you didn't see that either. Right. You knew that it was coming on, that it was working, what have you. One thing I was going to add to sort of the view that Ed mentioned, uh, and there's a great picture of what it looked like and the way Ed described it. And uh, one memory or several memories I have of flying is, you know, when you go out on a nice day like today, at least in the D.C. area here, it was very nice. And you you look up at the blue sky and you see a contrail and a little speck of an airplane up there. Right. You know, maybe that airplane's up there at 30,000 feet. It's an airliner going somewhere. We would be 50,000 feet above that. And you'd look <laughs> down and you'd see that little speck of an airplane and that contrail. And you thought, we are up here, right? That, that gave wow. you a feeling of, of, that, uh, of that altitude. At least it did for me. I never even thought about that. But yeah, so you were able to actually look down and see the air traffic and get perspective yeah. of what was happening from that, from that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes was, people ask on tours, you know, what was it like going that fast, right? It's really no different than when you're in an airliner and you look out a window, right? You're in an airliner going 500 miles an hour or something like that. Yeah, you're going over 2,000 miles an hour. Nothing's rushing by you because you're up so high. But you know you're going fast, like I said, 30 miles a minute, uh, a mile every two seconds. Um, but it's a very comfortable, as I described, uh, ride. It's relatively quiet because you're in this pressure suit. You're protected from the, all the stuff, uh, you know, the engines way behind you, the things that are spinning in the cockpit or what have you. It's, it's relatively quiet. It's very, very pleasant. And I was, one thing I was going to mention, we were talking about the pressure suit and Ed was mentioning uh, the relatively low um, uh, knots equivalent airspeed. You know, that's just indicated airspeed adjusted for compressibility, right? But it's relatively low. And sometimes people have said, well, you know, this airplane had ejection seats, and there were ejections at Mach 3 and 80,000 feet, and people survived. And you really? think, well, how could that be, right? Because of all this wind blast, this speed, and they, they said, described as the airspeed is relatively, you know, it's maybe 400 miles an hour, as opposed to if you ejected at Mach 1 at sea level, you'd be like 750 miles an hour. That would be a lot greater wind blast on your body than what happened there. Now, it's a long ways down. Uh, from those kind of altitudes, but uh, but the wind blast from an ejection would be less, and, it, it, and people did survive. Of course, you're in that pressure suit too; you'd be protected uh, as well there. 
And and you mentioned that this this happened. I think one of the things I'd like to to bring up here as we near the end of the program, and and Phil, you had talked about this some. You know, it's important to note that the aircraft were lost, lives were lost as part of this. People, this this was very you know uh, uh, risky business that that uh, both of you did. Whether it was development and test or it was flying missions. Yeah, um, actually, remarkably so. There was thirty two aircraft built. There were twelve lost in accidents. And there was only one fatality in the whole history of the SR-71 program. That was on a test mission with a uh, Lockheed uh, flight test engineer in the back. Uh, now, the A-12 that came before this, uh, they had, uh, I think, two or three fatalities there on some of their missions they flew. But uh, it really speaks, I think, to the training that was put in place and the, uh, um, you know, and the focus on, on safety and proper training and flying the airplane uh, properly. Wow. It really, really is amazing. And uh, when, when you think about the environment, when you think about everything of that story, from the beginning to the end, from the idea of how that aircraft was conceived, how quickly it was designed, the, the technology that was created to make it possible, uh, the work that was done by folks like both of you in order to uh, operate it and, and safely, and the, the length of time that it served during such critical missions, it is, it's really, really, really amazing. And um, uh, I, I would imagine that uh, you both consider yourselves fairly fortunate to have been uh, part of that program. Yeah, definitely. Well, Ed, Ed Yielding and Phil Susi, thank you so, so much for taking time uh, out of your day and out of your life in order to help support General Aviation to join us here at Social Flight Live and to tell us a little bit of that inside story of what it was like for both of you flying in the SR-71 Blackbird. Um, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. And to all of you that have also joined us this evening, just like to say thank you again. Please join us for future Social Flight Live pro, uh, programs that we are having. We have some great other things coming up as well. We've got uh, May 19th next Tuesday night. We have maintenance night with John Herman from Tempest Arrow and also aviation maintenance icon Mike Bush. We're going to have some great fun that evening. And then the next Tuesday after that, May 26th, we have Greg Cohen, president of Bendix King, and Joe Caraggio, Reno Air Racer, that works with Bendix King. So many, many fun things happening. Again, thank you so much, Ed and Phil. We couldn't have an evening like this without uh, both of you and your generosity and such incredible experience. For Social Flight Live, I'm Jeff Simon. Blue skies.